you know just as well as I do that even the mighty can fall. Even the mighty can fall. And by mighty, I mean men and women of faith, spiritual giants who walk with God, towering redwoods in the forest of the church. You and I have both seen it more times than we care to admit. We have seen that even the mighty can fall. Think about it. Men and women with extraordinary gifts seemed impervious. Something happened. Something changed. They let down their guard. They got soft on sin. They grew weak in their resistance, and eventually they stumbled and fell and ruined their ministries and made a mess of their lives. We have seen it so many times that even the mighty can fall. And all began with Adam and Eve, didn't it? Think about it. It, it didn't make any sense that they can fall, and yet they did. Noah walked out of the ark and was quickly ensnared by sin. Abraham succumbed to fear and unbelief, and it eventually led to centuries of conflict in the Middle East, which still continues to this day. Moses seemed invincible, impervious to sin's allurement, and yet he disqualified himself and did not enter the land. And you think of David's adultery, Judas's betrayal, Diotrephes, apostasy, and dozens of people that you personally know and you have personally seen who crashed and burned their lives on the jagged rocks of sin and lust or greed or whatever, and thus their lives serve as proof that sin is always crouching at your door. But you must Sadly, King Hezekiah of Judah has to be added to the list of those mighty men who fell. And not into apostasy or gross immorality, but, but into the subtle sin of not trusting in Yahweh alone. You see, all it was was just a, a little oversight. It was just a tiny slip of the soul when he got careless and proud and put his trust in the Babylonians instead of Yahweh alone. And the results of that tiny little lapse of faith, small though it seemed in the moment, would lead to the greatest disaster in the history of the southern, southern kingdom. Exile into Babylon, from which they have still never fully recovered. That's why I titled the sermon, The Lapse of Faith Heard Round the World, precisely because Hezekiah's lapse in faith, get this, would set off a chain reaction of spiritual catastrophes so devastating that they could only be repaired by the Messiah himself, by a redeemer and a king and a savior of supernatural power who will come to earth and make things right in the world. You see, that's why these chapters with Hezekiah are here in the Bible. Not merely to do what he did right or to avoid what he did wrong, but to point us to the only one who could clean the mess of Hezekiah and who can clean the mess in the world made by sin. 
namely the sovereign king of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the thing about Isaiah chapters 36 through 39, I keep saying this, is that Isaiah didn't write these chapters for the people of his own day. They were already there to see those things with their very own eyes. Rather, these chapters, get this, these chapters were for a future generation of Jews, not even yet in existence. In fact, the very people for whom these chapters were intended were in the middle of the very Babylonian exile caused by Hezekiah's lapse in faith. That's, a, that's 120 years in the future. And so that means they had to lay in the bed that Hezekiah made. And so why these chapters are here is to remind this generation, future generation, that the only hope for themselves and the only hope for the world, get this, is the comprehensive saving work of the Messiah who was none other than Jesus Christ alone. And 2,700 years later, that is also their intended design for you. That you would see the world as so utterly unfixable and so humanly irreparable that you would cast your hope on Christ alone. That as you see the terrors of a fallen world, as you fight with your own flesh, as you wage war against your own sin, as you stare your deepest fears right in the face, that you would be persuaded that the reign of darkness in the world is soon coming to an end. You understand that's eschatology. Eschatology. And you see, the thing about eschatology, what God has planned in the future, what Christ is going to do in the future, that is not merely a subject of study. It is an injection of hope into the soul. That is not just a doctrinal position. It is a spear that pierces our deepest fears. You understand where the end times are not known and cherished and loved and proclaimed, where that does not happen. There are a people who are haunted by the horrors of a fallen world coming apart at the scene. And the prophet Isaiah was not about to let that happen to his people, and the elders of this church are not about to let that happen to you. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see seven ways. Seven ways that Christ will clean the mess, not just the mess made by Hezekiah, but the mess in the world made by sin. So we're going seven ways that Christ will clean the mess in the world made by sin which we'll see at the end, but you remember. Hopefully you remember chapters 38 and 39. There, there are two crises, or better, two tests of Hezekiah's faith. You remember these. Test number one, chapter 38, we saw last week, Hezekiah passed the test with flying colors, didn't he? When faced with death, he excelled in faith and he trusted Yahweh for his grace, A plus. Well done, Hezekiah. Test number two, chapter 39, F, F, insufficient faith. It did not meet expectations. 
failed to meet the standards of trust in Yahweh. He totally bombed the test, which a man of his spiritual maturity, he really should have known better. As you're about to see the test that he is about to face, this was a total no-brainer. This should have been an easy test to pass. And yet something happened inside this man that that made him relax his grip and slip in his faith and put his people in a very precarious position. Let's watch the scene unfold. Let's begin first with part one. Part one, which I call the kisses from an enemy. The kisses from an enemy. Look at verse one. In that time, Merodach Baladon, son of Baladon, king of Babel, sent letters and a gift to Hezekiah. For he heard that he was sick, and he became well. Ah, that's really sweet, isn't it? Flowers and a get well card from the king of Babylon. That's, that's really sweet. That's, that's very, very thoughtful of him because, you again, you remember what happened in chapter 38. Hezekiah was mortally sick. He was in critical condition. This was really serious. He was literally on the brink of death, and Isaiah told him that he was going to die. He was 39 years old, and, and he was not only one of the greatest kings in the history of Judah, one of the greatest kings in the history of the world, and yet he's so young. There's still so much more life left to live for this man. And yet his reign, magnificent and God-exalting though it had been, was coming to an end. And you understand this was a test. This was an excruciating test of Hezekiah's faith. And you remember what went down. Overwhelmed with grief and sorrow, he turns his face to the wall. And with, with the last ounce of strength he had left in his mortal body, chokes out a prayer to Yahweh. And Yahweh intervenes. Although technically not obligated to do so, Yahweh intervenes and heals his beloved king. In a sovereign and supernatural way, Yahweh saves his king from the jaws of death and adds 15 years to his life. God gets the glory as matchless and supreme. Hezekiah's faith gets rewarded as exemplary and admirable. A plus again. Well done, Hezekiah. And you see, that episode of him getting healed is exactly what Isaiah means in verse 1. Look at the text when he says, in that time. As a response to that very event, the king of Babylon sent a gift. The word spread. The news went viral. Even as far as 2,000 miles east into Babylon, which in age before social media, that's a pretty impressive spread. And the name of the Babylonian king, you see there, Merodach Baladon, son of Baladon, who knows and who cares who that is. What's worthy of note, what's worthy of note, number one, is that Babylon at the time was not the world power of the day. Assyria was. Assyria was. Now, Babylon was not the biggest dog in the fight, to be sure. But they were also not a little puppy. They were, as it turns out, get this, on the brink of greatness. They were. They were an up-and-comer in the ancient world, and they were building something as we speak profound, namely a kingdom and a dynasty that would far exceed the reach and supremacy anything the world had ever seen. They were building this. 
In less than 120 years, they would topple over the Assyrian kingdom and become the new heavyweight champion of the ancient Near East. And here, the king of the up-and-comers, Merodach Baladon, king of Babylon, when he heard that Hezekiah got well, reached out to him and sent the king of Judah a gift. As a, as a loving and compassionate gesture of friendship. Or was it? Is that really what this was? You don't think there's more here than meets the eye? Because you notice second, what the king of Babylon sent to Hezekiah. Notice he sent an entourage, ambassadors, representatives to personally meet and greet Hezekiah. And in verse 1, in their hands are some letters and a gift from the king. What is this? Flowers and a get well card? Perhaps, or maybe it was a contract and a bribe. What I mean is this smells really slimy and political to me. Everything about the scene, especially, especially Isaiah's really, really negative response to what is about to happen at the end of the chapter reveals that what this gesture really was, get this, was an offer of an alliance to team up together with Babylon, to join forces against the kingdom of Assyria, against the big bad wolf of Assyria, which sounds great. This makes sense. This is what you do. That is so politically clever and savvy. This makes sense. The problem, the problem with forming an alliance with Babylon or anyone for that matter, listen carefully, is that under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, this was a formal violation. I was forbidden. Forbidden. To, to make an alliance with other nations to protect you instead of Yahweh alone was a savage breach of the covenant and was viewed by Yahweh as a rejection of his authority, if not even of apostasy, which is what it was. This is exactly what Hezekiah's father did 30 years before this when he made an alliance with Assyria, which was the very thing that got them into this mess in the first place. And this, you understand, this right here is the test of Hezekiah's faith. You understand, Hezekiah was a straight-A student when it came to trusting in Yahweh, and yet the question is, the question is, would he get in bed with Babylon? Or would he trust in Yahweh alone? Verse 2. The Hebrew literally says that Hezekiah rejoiced, was delighted, was pleased over them. Over what? Over the men who came and the gifts they brought. Notice, and he showed them the treasure house with the silver and with the gold and with the spices and with the fine oil and the whole, his whole armory and everything which was, in, which was found in his treasuries. There was not a thing which Hezekiah did not show them in his house or palace and in all of his dominion. I guess we have our answer, don't we? Hezekiah was thrilled. He, he, he was elated over these Babylonian ambassadors and, and the gift that they brought. Whatever it was contained in those letters from the king of Babylon simply won Hezekiah over. And he fell over himself to show these men extra hospitality. 
I mean, if an alliance is what they were after, and I believe that it was, and it is confirmed later that that's what happened, Hezekiah's joy and subsequent tour of the entirety of the kingdom reveals his answer, doesn't it? He was willing to play ball. Sign on the dotted line to become a partner with a major player on the scene of human history. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Hezekiah was flattered. Maybe, maybe he felt like he had finally arrived. I mean, this probably felt like a notable achievement to be recognized by the king of the fastest growing empire on the face of the planet to hobnob with the big boys, to rub shoulders with the elite, to sit at the table with the coolest kids in school. There, there is a rush and a euphoria. Is there not that, inf- that floods the soul when important people look your way? And when they praise and applaud your achievements. There's a name for that in the Bible. It's motivated by pride. It hungers for power and it longs for the glory that comes from men and it's called idolatry. It's idolatry. Only in this case, the God that's being worshipped is you. It's called being a glory thief and I believe that's exactly what happened to King Hezekiah. He got and he loved the kisses that he got from Babylon, but what he did not know is that in a decision that was going to destroy his entire country, he could not see that these were but the kisses of an enemy. And theologically, you just got to know, Hezekiah should have known better. He should have known better. This is Babylon, derived from Babel, the historical epicenter of rebellion and godlessness. In chapters 13 through 23, do you remember that? Isaiah preached a series of messages warning the people of Judah to never trust in the nations. Do not trust them. Don't trust any of them. Don't envy them. Don't fear them. Don't become like them. Don't imitate them. Don't make deals with them. Don't make alliances with them. Did I mention do not trust them? And you see, and the first nation at the top of the list in chapter 13 was Babylon. And yet, and yet trusting them in a really dumb and foolish way is exactly what he did. Look again at verse 2. I mean, just, just feel, see this through this lens. Hezekiah showed them the treasure house with the silver and with the gold and with the spices and the fine oil and his armory, everything which was in the treasuries. That last verse there, that last statement there at the end of the verse, there was not a thing he did not show them in all of his palace and all of his dominion. That makes us really nervous. Why would you do this? Why would you not be a little more discreet and and wise and guarded, especially towards a nation way bigger and stronger than you, especially towards a wicked and godless people who could not and should not be trusted? And you can see this wasn't just your basic tour for like curious visitors. This was VIP behind the scenes, showing them classified top secret stuff that nobody needed to see. Took them to the vaults filled with treasure. 
to the reserves filled with food, to the armories filled with weapons, every single thing of value and beauty was included in the tour of the kingdom. And, and, and he showed them everything, everything that's in the house, the palace, and in the dominion. Are you serious? You don't, you don't do that. You don't invite strangers in and show them where you keep the guns and the jewelry. And you better believe it the entire time the Babylonians are taking notes, taking pictures, doing the math in their heads. They never forgot this. They never forgot this. Jerusalem became a very juicy prize later on. And 120 years later, when they stormed the gates, they took everything and leveled the city to the ground. What happened here? I mean, this, this is so stupid and amateur. This is so beneath a king like godly Hezekiah. I mean, what on earth was he thinking? I think it was a moment of pride and weakness and vanity and ambition. This was his moment to play in the big leagues, to rub shoulders with the pros, to have a seat at the table. And here it is, to be recognized and validated that he was a somebody, that he didn't need to sit at the kids' table anymore, that he could have a seat with the adults, with the kings and the influencers of the world. And yet, as you're about to see, this would make a mess so utterly unfixable and so utterly irreparable that it would require the sovereign intervention of the Messiah himself. And you can see this, can't you? You have seen this, have you not, in, in your life at times? The euphoric, blinding effect of the praise of men. Have you seen this? The applause of people. The longing and hunger to be esteemed and recognized and validated. That makes us do really crazy things to get people, especially wealthy, powerful people who don't know Christ to like us, immediately, immediately puts us in a position to compromise our theology, to compromise our morality, to put us in a place where we are no longer feel like we could be bold with the gospel. Have you seen this in your life? Because I just got to level with you. It's going to cost you to live for the glory of God. You know that, right? It's going to cost you. In fact, it's going to cost you more and more every single year of your life to identify publicly with Jesus Christ. Some of you perhaps, I hope this is not the case, but some of you perhaps are going to be tempted to trash your faith and walk away from Christ all because your identification with him is going to keep you from climbing the ladder Socially, corporately, it might even make you hated by the world. Is that a price you're willing to pay? Is that a cost that you're willing to suffer? Do you love and treasure and fear the Lord Jesus enough to identify yourself with him out loud in public? 
Even when promotion and popularity or money is on the line. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? It's a rhetorical question. Should that day ever come for you where you are tested, tempted in this way, may God give you strength. May God give you strength because it's coming. Because you have to understand that the best way to prepare for your future Hezekiah moment, listen carefully, is to every single day of your life, scour the pages of Holy Scripture. And find all the reasons the Bible gives for why Jesus Christ is a treasure and a perfection of beauty. That is how you win. You have to lock in, fill the storehouse of your soul with all the reasons the Bible gives for why Jesus Christ is infinitely supreme. If you don't have that, when that day comes, you will lose. And that's not what Hezekiah had. In this test of faith, it should have been so simple. He was dazed and confused by the narcotics of the praise of men, and it would not end well, which brings us to part two. Part two, which I call the wounds from a prophet. The wounds from a prophet. We see, we've seen the kisses from an enemy, now the wounds from a prophet, and here now is where the plot thickens. Because Hezekiah is having the time of his life here. Showing off the goods of the kingdom. Look at this. Well, if you think that's something, let me take you over here. And uh, let me show you this. And the oohs and the ahs. And all of a sudden, Hezekiah appears at the door. Uninvited. And in verse 3, he pulls Hezekiah aside and he asks him two questions. Look at the text. And Isaiah the prophet came to the king Hezekiah and he said to him, What did these men say to you? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, From a faraway land they came to me, from Babylon. Now you'll notice here, you'll notice this is very important. Notice how Isaiah speaks of himself in the third person there and he refers to himself as a prophet. Do you know why he does that? Because he's on duty. That's why. Because he's on the clock. That's why. It's foreshadowing of what's about to happen. Because before this scene ends, Isaiah will prophesy to Hezekiah and what he says will be a doozy. And yet you notice, you notice there that there were two questions, only one of which gets answered. Did you notice? It means he's got a guilty conscience. Hezekiah was caught in the act. I mean, he's willing to admit, he's willing to admit that these men are from Babylon, which cannot be denied, but he will not confess to the prophet what it is they discussed. To do so would incriminate himself. And again, the fact that these men are from Babylon is not some innocent detail. These are not kids you hang around with. You understand Babylon is not neutral ground. These are not allies. These are not friends. These are not advocates. These are not partners. They are not comrades. Unless they are worshipers of Yahweh and committed to his global cause, they are enemies of God's people and objects of outreach 
And in verse 4, Isaiah asks another penetrating question that exposes even more the stupidity and the iniquity of Hezekiah's antics. Look at the text. And he said, what did they see in your house? (laughs) And Hezekiah said, everything which is in my house, they saw. There was not a thing which I did not show them in my treasuries. You just wonder. If as Hezekiah is saying this out loud, it became clear how foolish this really was. And thankfully, Hezekiah was honest. What did they see, Hezekiah? What did you show them exactly? Everything. I showed them everything. (laughs) Everything in my house, meaning the palace, even the entire dominion. And he admits very truthfully, there was not a thing I didn't show them in my treasuries. Isaiah, I ain't going to lie. I showed them everything. Every square inch of the palace and the treasuries and the vaults and our weaponries and our arsenals, our supplies, there is nothing that we have in our possession that they did not see. And I guess that answers the first question that he refused to answer, didn't it? What did they say to you? That was the question because what they said was, hey, you want to join our team? And he said, sure. And they said, cool, what do you have to play with? And he said, come and see. I'll show you. And that right there, that was the lapse of faith that would be heard around the world. There it was. He didn't trust in Yahweh alone. And you understand, this is what was supposed to make the Jews different. This is what made them different from everybody else. They they didn't make deals with other nations. They didn't negotiate with terrorists. They didn't make alliances with other countries. One of the ways they were to evangelize the world was to show by their trust that Yahweh could be trusted. That he was matchless and lofty and exalted and supreme over all the idols of the world that fearful souls worshipped. Hezekiah had the golden opportunity handed to him to tell of these men, to witness to these men of the glory of Yahweh and the fall of man and the promise of a redeemer and the hope of a kingdom and paradise regained. In other words, to give them the gospel. Thank you for the offer, men. But we're going to pass. You see, we trust in Yahweh around these parts. And by the way, let me tell you all about him. There was none of that. There's none of that. Instead, there was schmoozing and glad-handing and palm-greasing and bargaining and flirting as Hezekiah slipped between the sheets with Babylon. This is exactly what his dad did 30 years before this, and it put them in a horrible predicament. They almost lost everything to Assyria. And now, and now, this exa- the ripple effects of this would bring upon them a crisis more crushing than anything they had ever faced in their history. And the thing that makes this so ironic is that this was basic. This was easy. This was simple. This was elementary school level kind of stuff here. And yet, even with a PhD of trusting in Yahweh, Hezekiah failed the test. 
proving again that even the mighty can fall. Let me ask you this. Like Hezekiah, in what ways is your own faith being squeezed and challenged? What I mean is, what pressures, what fears, what temptations, what enticements, what allurements right now are encroaching upon your own soul, challenging your faith in Christ and his word? Do you have anything like that? What are those things in your life right now so enticing, so inviting, so alluring, so overwhelming that, that simply trusting in God sounds foolish and irresponsible? Do you have anything like that? Do you sometimes feel like your faith is fragile and you are hanging by a thread and that at any moment you were about to snap and give in to anger, to give in to despair, to give in to fear, to give in to anxiety, to give in to greed, to give in to lust, to give in to pride like Hezekiah, to give in to pills, to give in to alcohol, to give in to the thoughts that you think when you are in the middle of despair. Have you been there? Are you there now? Because, beloved, don't you know? Have you not heard? You have a great high priest with the Father. A great high priest who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. You don't have to snap. You don't have to give in. You don't have to crash and burn your lives on the jagged rocks of sin and be counted among the slain. You have a high priest with the Father. And his work did not end for you at the cross. His work is right now 24-7 at the throne of grace, transforming triumphant, overcoming grace, and he is ready. He is always ready to meet you in your fear, meet you in your despair, meet you in your temptation to give you exactly what you need. Even if all you can muster is a barely audible prayer whispered in the moment, he will meet you and give you what you need. Do you cry out to him when it matters the most? Hezekiah didn't do that. And in verse 5, Isaiah goes on full-on prophet mode with a message from Yahweh. This can't be good. This won't be good. Look at verses 5 through 7. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. Uh-oh. Behold, the days are coming. When everything that is in your house which your fathers have stored to this day will be taken to Babylon. There will not be a thing left, says Yahweh. And from your own children, meaning your own descendants who come forth from you, of whom you became the father, they will be taken. 
And they will be princes or even eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Words fail to describe what that would have sounded like to God's people in that day. This was a nightmare come true. I mean, out of all the terrors and threats and warnings promised in the book of Deuteronomy for unrepentant sin, this was the absolute worst. Because you see it, don't you? Verse 6, the day is coming when everything that you see in the vaults, in the treasures, in the storehouses, it will be gone. Taken. Stolen. Plundered. Ransacked. Taken to Babylon. It'll be gone. And notice how Isaiah echoes the words from verse 4. There was not a thing in the palace Hezekiah didn't show them. Verse 6, there will not be a thing not taken to Babylon. It will be gone. All of it will be gone. And not just stuff. People too. Look again at verse 7. And from your children, not his direct children, but the people who come after him, who come forth from you, of whom you became the, the father. They shall be taken and they shall be princes in the palace of the king of Babylon. You know what this means, don't you? What does it mean? Exile. Captivity. Slavery. Babylon is coming for everything, absolutely everything, not just stuff, but people too. And even the royal family, Hezekiah's great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren in shackles and chains and loaded in cattle cars, headed to Babylon as slaves. And the reason why that's a problem, you understand, the reason why that's a big deal is because Hezekiah was in the family line of David, wasn't he? You understand, if the family line of David is taken captive and carted off to Babylon, get this, it puts the entire Davidic line of kings into jeopardy. In other words, no more Davidic line, no Messiah to come. That's a problem. That's a cataclysmic global problem that will put the very word and reputation of Yahweh into question. And, and trust me, Babylon didn't discriminate. They, they took everybody. They didn't just take the royal family. They took absolutely everybody except for a few homeless and scragglers in, in the land. They took everybody and dumped them in a ghetto made for the Jews. I mean, you understand, this is the unraveling of an entire civilization here. Nations don't come back from exile. They go out of existence because of exile. I mean, the predicament, the predicament that Hezekiah just put his people in is so devastating because it would result in the direct reversal of everything Yahweh wanted to give him, and it would make him look like a liar. Did you feel this? And Hezekiah wasn't stupid. He knew exactly what this meant. He understood perfectly the implications of this, which brings us to part three. Part three, the disappointing response from the king. The disappointing response from the king. Because, because you know the difference, don't you? Between true, authentic repentance and mere remorse. You know the difference between those, don't you? Or as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 7, you know the difference between godly sorrow and 
worldly sorrow. What is the difference between those two things? Well, godly sorrow, get this, godly sorrow is crushed. That the living God was traded for the suicidal pleasures of sin. That's godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is just kind of sad that you got caught. And you tell me what kind of sorrow Hezekiah had. Look at verse 8. After hearing this crushing news about what his actions would lead to, here is the king's response. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of Yahweh which you have spoken is good. And he said, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. I don't, I don't exactly know what to make of that response. Do you? I mean, to his credit, he does acknowledge that the word of Yahweh is good. What, what Isaiah said was good, that was right, what's about to happen is fair and just, that can't be denied. He, he commends Isaiah for what he has done, his fulfilling his job as a prophet, that is good, well done, Isaiah. But that last statement, how are we supposed to understand, for there shall be peace and truth in my days, in my days, meaning what? Meaning, well, that is a shame, Isaiah. But at least it won't happen when I'm alive. I think it's what he's after. I feel bad for them, Isaiah. I, I really do. But, but at least in my days, there will be peace and truth. I mean, I mean there, we should find some comfort in that, shouldn't we? I mean, let's look on the bright side. Let's look at the positive end of things, shall we? I admit it's hard. It's hard to get inside his head and see what, exactly what he's thinking. But it is interesting, isn't it, how, he, how different it is he responds here than to other times in his life, right? That's why Isaiah puts this at the end. Other times we saw this in chapters 36 through 38. Whenever there was a crisis, how did he respond? In faith, in desperation, in prayer, in brokenness, and even the confession of his own sin. Here, there's none of that. He just kind of shrugs his shoulders. Well, what can you do? At least we dodged a bullet. I think you'd agree that's light years away from true repentance. That's not even close. There's not a shred of brokenness here. There's not, there's not an ounce of concern that the Davidic line of kings would be put in jeopardy. In the chapter before this, he, he lamented the fact when he was sick that he would not be able to pass on the faithfulness of God to his children. Now he shows no care for his future descendants. And you understand, don't you? Let's, let's pick this apart. Let's, let's do a little biblical counseling here, shall we? The reason why he is not crushed over his sin is because he is not captivated by his God. Don't you see, when we fail to see the blazing glory of God in the beauty of his holiness, we fail to see how repulsive and monstrous sin against him really is. You see, when God is small, sin is small. And when sin is small, it doesn't really take much to sort it out, does it? If sin is a small problem, salvation will need, need to be a cooperative effort in which God chips in to help you out a little bit. But you see, when God is high and magnificent and sin is deep and vile, 
only then can we see that salvation is a true rescue of the helpless. And I'm wondering if you see God in sin like that. If you see God in sin like that. That sin is vile because God is beautiful. That sin is monstrous because God is marvelous. I guess what I'm asking, do you see the true repentance is so much more than the icky feelings you have after you sin? But the true brokenness over sin only happens in our lives when we see the blazing glory of God and the beauty of his holiness. In other words, if you want to see your sin as repugnant, you must see the living God as magnificent. And where we see the magnificence of God is, of course, in the sacred vault of Scripture alone, which means if you've got sin hanging around in your life and it doesn't seem to take no for an answer, and yet you want to see it slain and lie and subjection at your feet, the answer isn't easy, but it is simple. You have to be clobbered by the weight of the majesty of the glory of God. That is how you win. And this is not what Hezekiah saw. He was glib, cavalier, cold-hearted, unrepentant. You understand Hezekiah's lapse in faith. This is so important. Hezekiah's lapse in faith would set off a chain reaction of tragedies so catastrophic and utterly irreparable that they could only be fixed by the Messiah. That is the point of chapter 39. Hezekiah made a mess. And sin has made a mess in the world, and we have got to know exactly what the Messiah is going to do to clean that up, which brings us now to seven ways. Seven ways that the Messiah will clean the mess of the world made by sin. These are in your notes. Number one. Number one, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will return to earth. He will return to this earth. It's called the second coming. I mean, there's the rapture. I believe that too. That could be at any moment when the church is supernaturally extracted off the planet. And that's great too. But you see, it is the second coming where business really goes down. Psalm 2, Isaiah 11, Zechariah 14, Daniel 7, and Revelation 19 are clear. The king will return with the glory of a thousand splendid sons and save his people and slaughter his foes. He will take his rightful place on a throne in Jerusalem and be worshipped by the nations. Everything that is ugly and broken and wicked and twisted and mutilated in the world will be removed and reversed and all things will be right. And I know you know this and I know you believe this, but my question for you is, Do you know this? Do you believe this? Because it's either this or it is sanity. 
Take your pick. The second way. The second way Christ will clean the mess in the world made by sin. Number two, King Jesus will reverse the curse. He will reverse the curse. And by that I mean, of course, the curse of sin. When Christ arrives, he will undo what Adam did. He will fix what Adam broke. He will regain what Adam gambled in the garden when he believed the devil's lie. He will bring the planet back to its pristine, pre-fall, paradise-like conditions. You understand, beloved, all the things you hate and fear the most about this fallen world when the Messiah arrives will be reversed and removed and replaced by conditions fitting for a kingdom. You need this for your sanity. You need this because one of the ways we persevere through a world cursed by sin is to remember that the day is going to come when it will not be that way anymore. Number three. Number three, when the Messiah returns, he will renew creation. He will renew creation. This is often overlooked eschatological discussions because the funny thing about living in a fallen world is that that's the only one we've ever known. That's all we've known. We've, we've only known a planet ravaged by the fall. We can't even comprehend the untold number of ways that the virus of sin corrupts every level of the created order, every grain of sand, every particle of light, every cherry plucked from a tree. The curse runs deep in creation but the day will come when the king will lift the curse. Deserts will turn into orchards. I'm serious. Barren lands will be lush and abundant. Droughts will be over. Famines will be over. Poverty will be over. World hunger will be over. When the Messiah comes to reign, this will be an ecological, agricultural, meteorological, cosmological transformation of the entire planet, and it will become again like the Garden of Eden. I mean, we too care about hunger. We too care about the planet. We too care about the climate. We care about farming and water shortages, just not the way the world does. And the greatest thing of all is, we know the answer. We know the solution. And it is the glorious arrival of Jesus Christ who when he returns will make all things, all things be the way they ought to be number four. Number four, when the Messiah returns, he will restore the nation of Israel. He will restore the nation of Israel. This is not a small thing, church. This matters. This matters to you. Not because you are Israel, but because God keeping his promises to them is the guarantee that he will keep his promises to you. The nation of Israel right now scattered in sin and unbelief hating their very own Messiah in the greatest plot twist in history at the end of the age will repent and embrace their king. It will be the greatest revival in the history of the world. And when it's all said and done, they will lead the nations in the worship of their Messiah. If you have any doubts this morning about the dependability or reliability or faithfulness of God, Israel is the proof. 
I mean, you, the reason why this matters to you at all is because your faith is inseparably intertwined with theirs. The hope extended to Israel throughout the Bible is, is, is foundational to your own hope in Jesus Christ because it is one and the same hope. But it's not just Israel. It's the mess of the nations that the Messiah will clean, which brings us to number five. The Messiah will rescue the nations. The Messiah will rescue the nations, which he is doing right now through the church and the proclamation of the gospel. He will continue to do it in the time of the tribulation. You read Revelation 7. It is clear a great multitude will come forth from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And then you read Revelation 5, 9, and 10, which portrays the future, the end. It portrays the kingdom. Listen to what it says. It's speaking, singing to Christ. Worthy are you, Christ, to take the book and break its seals because you were slain. And you ransom for God with your blood some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them for God to be a kingdom and priests. And they will reign upon the earth. This is us. This is the nations. This is, this is real. And you understand what this does, don't you? The kingdom of tomorrow liberates evangelism today, doesn't it? The greatest foundation of all missiology is eschatology. Right? It frees us and liberates us to see that, that the, the call to reach the nations with the gospel is guaranteed and cannot possibly fail because we see the outcome in the scriptures of what the end will be. They're there. They're there. And there are people right now in your life who do not know the Lord Jesus. They don't know him. And were they to die today, they would not be included in the kingdom. But you can change that. You can change that. You can change that. And you must. Not because you have the power, but because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes Number six, when the Messiah returns, he will remove the wicked. He will remove the wicked. Don't feel bad about this. Don't, don't feel squeamish about this. It, just because we also deserve hell does not mean that we cannot look forward to the overthrow of the wicked because that is exactly what is going to happen. He will come again with crowns on his head a sword in his mouth and blood on his robes and fire in his eyes and he will trample the nations in the winepress of his wrath and we will worship him when he does. Number seven. The Messiah, when he comes, will rule and reign on a throne. He will rule and reign on a throne, on earth, on this earth because where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. The first king and his bride lost the planet, but the king of kings and his blood-bought bride will rule it once again, and he will rule it forever and ever and ever. You understand it's so clear, isn't it? Eschatology is not just a subject to study. It's an injection of hope into the soul. It's not just a position on a doctrinal statement. It is a spear that impales our deepest fears. 
Why? Because at the center of our eschatology and our vision for the end is a mess cleaning, sin bearing, serpent crushing, kingdom ruling Messiah. And if you don't know him this morning, if you don't know him and belong to him as Lord and God and King and Savior and treasure, you need to know that there is still water left in the streams of his patience. There is. The window of grace and the door of God's mercy is still open for you. It's still open for you to take hold of Jesus Christ and by faith gain access to the prize of eternal life. But you need to know the door won't stay open for long. The window of grace is closing. The streams of God's patience are dwindling. And there is only a little time left. And the time is today. The time is now to fling yourself by faith into the arms of the great Savior King whose arms, at least for the time being, are open and ready to receive you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are grateful over your control over history, for your plan unfolding. We're also grateful that you do not hide the flaws of mighty men, that we see the blood and guts, the horrors on the page. And not only does it remind us, O oh Lord, to never do those things, but, but more than that, it, it points us to the only one who can fix the mess. And Christ, that is you, and we are grateful for your current ministry as our great high priest and for your future ministry as the king and ruler of all who will make all things right. And we are grateful for that. It is the foundation of our hope and of our sanity. And it's in your mighty name we pray.